Hello, welcome to Live from CapTimes Idea Fest. I'm Eric Lawrenson with the Capital Times. Over the course of the past week, we've been bringing you recordings of interviews and conversations from our first ever Idea Fest at the University of Wisconsin Madison. Today, remembering two progressive icons. To help celebrate the 100th birthday of the Cap Times, Associate Editor John Nichols and Editor Emeritus Dave Zwiefel discuss the life and times of the newspaper's founder, William T. Evu. They also talk about the legacy of Ed Garvey, the famous Wisconsin attorney and political activist. All right, let's get started. I hope you enjoy the talk. And we will uh, be talking a little bit about uh, one of the people that we love and who's in the book a lot, that's Ed Garvey. But we did want to, uh, and, and we should probably just start up front so you can give her one of the first of many rounds of applause. Uh, Betty Garvey, Ed's wife, is with us today. And, uh, we're going to bring our friend Norm up in a little bit, though, to, to, to you know, kind of shamelessly speak of our friendship. But uh, before that, we want to shamelessly speak of the Cap Times. And uh, about, I don't know how long, what was it, about a year ago, about a year ago, just about a year ago now. Yeah. Um, Dave and I started talking about doing a, a book on the 100th anniversary of the Cap Times. And what happened with that was a really interesting thing because we had discussed it a little bit. And as with 90% of the things we talk about, we had discussed it and then not done anything. Um, because we have a lot of ideas that don't, you know, it, it's like the, the whole thing of making Garvey governor, we discussed it, and, you know, did some things, but it didn't quite happen. So sometimes things don't get totally, circles don't get totally completed. But in this case, um, it was very interesting uh, confluence of events. I was at the Willie Street Festival, and I ran into one of the editors of the State Historical Society Press. And we were just like talking and fooling around like goofballs. And in fact, I think she was literally dressed as a butterfly. And uh, if you go to the Willie Street Festival tomorrow, you will in fact see people dressed as butterflies. And we started talking about all this. And, and I said, well, David, I've been thinking of doing a book. And she said, oh my gosh, that's a great idea, right? And very, very positive. And then I thought, well, we, obviously we've underplayed this thing. And so it happened, we ended up talking to a number of publishers, all of whom were really excited about this idea because the Cap Times is different than any other newspaper in the United States. The Cap Times is the only newspaper in the United States of America that published daily, that has this urban or localized tradition that proudly identifies as radical. That our publisher, our founder, William T. Ebu, used the word radical on a regular basis in describing the Capital Times. But it wasn't radical in the sense of a student radical from the 60s per se. It was radical in the sense that it would go beyond the norms of political discourse in, in the United States. That we would not be constrained by, frankly, the, the empty-headed, bleary-eyed stupidity of the Democratic and Republican parties in this country. Their failure to embrace big, bold changes. Their failure to imagine a country in which social and economic justice and peace would be the touchstones from which you began rather than some you know, airy-fairy nonsense that you never got around to. And so what Dave and I decided to do was to write a book, not about where every office was, although we mention it all because we're nostalgic, but to write a book about the Cap Times' ideas over 100 years. And so the book deals with peace. It deals with economic justice. It deals with civil rights. It deals with environmental protection. It deals with our love of the city of Madison and our love of the state of Wisconsin. And at the end, also, frankly, a huge component on the empowerment movements of the last hundred years for women, for Native Americans, for African Americans, for Latinos, and, and the fact that the Cap Times was there throughout those struggles and embraced them, not casually and not grudgingly, but in fact, usually elbowed its way you know, close to the front of the line as we could get. Um, so we told that story. And I love the book. I think it, I'm very, very pleased with it. And it'll make a fine holiday gift when it arrives shortly before Christmas. Um, but with that explanation, uh, I, I will tell you that the biggest problem with the book is that it, it's, it's like drenched in Ebu hero worship. 
I mean, it's just unbelievable how much we talk about William T. Evu. So I want to bring Dave in uh, because Dave actually, you know, is, I guess the last remaining person around who was hired by Evu and who actually also enjoyed the wrath of Evu. And, and to, an introduction of Dave, who is the best journalist and the best person I've ever met. Um, by with, like, and there's frankly, it's like tallest building in Wichita. It's not much competition, but um, but Dave will tell you the best. He'll tell you lots of stories about Evu, but the best story about Evu is when he got a speeding ticket. I think going to a story. Where were you, where'd you get the speeding ticket? I was home on leave from the army. You're, yeah, so he's like a hero, a military hero, right? He's home on leave from the army. And he's racing around Madison, probably the streets were empty, whatever, gets a speeding ticket. And of course, in the EVU tradition of transparency, they, Dave doesn't get written up when he does great things or noble things and that. But Dave made the Cap Times in a full story on Cap Times writer Dave Zweeple gets speeding ticket. Uh, the, uh, his mantra was that if you write a staff uh, and you did something against the law, whether it was a speeding ticket or even a series of parking tickets, yeah. it got put in the newspaper. And the idea behind it all was that way nobody could uh, complain when they'd call and say, geez, can't you keep my name out of the newspaper? So and, I even put and, my staff in. And, yeah. That's right, exactly. He would, he would respond, you know, nobody is immune from, uh, if you're involved with, with something that's a public record, it, it goes in the newspaper, which I thought was a pretty, uh, pretty ironclad thing to do for him. Uh, he... Uh, uh, but he was a very unusual man, uh, a, uh, uh, an incredible newspaper man, as we, as we all know. And I, I think the book really uh, uh, will, if, when you read it, uh, you'll find that uh, it really describes him, uh, uh, the kind of guy that he, uh, that he really was. Uh, uh, Evie was, uh, of course, uh, came from a... Uh, a lumber family in Merrill, Wisconsin. Uh, his uh, dad was a, a Norwegian immigrant. Uh, Norway was dear, true, uh, dear to his heart. Shamelessly. So. Shamelessly so. And uh, he decided to come to Madison to go to, to uh, college. His dad wanted him to be a banker in Merrill. Had a job lined up for him. But instead he uh, came to Madison to go to college. He did not go to journalism school because there was no journalism school at the time. But he did graduate. He, uh, he then went, uh, he got a job at the Milwaukee Sentinel. Uh, one, one of his uh, cohorts on the Sentinel staff was uh, none other than Carl Sandberg. Mm -hmm. Edna Ferber was also uh, on the staff at the time. Uh, and then he got a, a job offer at the uh, uh, Chicago uh, American, went to Chicago, and uh, it was there that uh, he ran into a friend from his college days who said that the State Journal in Madison was looking for a, uh, a managing editor. And uh, would he be interested in perhaps applying for that job, which he indeed did do. Uh, he came to Madison, and back in uh, those days, uh, the State Journal was a uh, vociferous supporter of Robert M. Fighting Bob Follett. And so it was right in Evie's wheelhouse. Who briefly was just, honorable. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and of course the story which I'm sure a lot of you have read in, in our newspaper over the years uh, is that the uh, when World War One came along and the followed, of course, uh, uh, vociferously opposed us going into that war, uh, the State Journal turned on him, and uh, uh, and much of you chagrin also uh, was involved in a lot of sort of underhanded 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 tactics including uh, calling uh, La Follette a, f a friend of the Germans uh, and, and on a German uh, uh, actually had a, a, a getting largesse uh, from, the, from the German uh, government. Mm -hmm. And uh, so have you quit and discussed and, and went out and started his own newspaper. And that was uh, in December of 1917, uh, soon to be 100 years. Uh, conveniently coincide with the publication of the book. Of the book, that's correct, yeah. And, uh, and this, the, the story, which John tells a lot of the, uh, uh, the origins of the Cap Times, the, the incredible uh, trauma the paper, Evie himself, went through to get the paper started, because it was immediately met with a huge boycott. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce uh, 
exhorted its membership not to advertise in that newspaper because it was subversive. And, of course, by, th- by this time, the war hit was already underway. Uh, Woodrow Wilson had entered the war, and the Capitals made it very clear on that first issue that it was, would support the war, uh, our troops, as long as uh, the, we were fighting a war, it would, ba- it would back the, uh, uh, the uh, reaching the conclusion of that war, obviously. Uh, John, I find an interesting tidbit when uh, the war ended. Uh, Which part? <laughs> what? The, the editorial he had when the war ended. Oh, that was World War II. Oh, that was World, that was World War II. II. That was great. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so just uh, grab a little piece of this here because, like, yeah, Evu started this newspaper, but how do you start a newspaper? Well, first thing, you know, Evu, in his charming Norwegian way, swore a blood oath on the editor of the State Journal. That, was, that friendship was over. And um, so he goes out and decides to start a competing newspaper. He rents some space over on King Street, right? Right, just around where Ankara Coffee is now on King Street downtown. And he's got to get a press and some other pieces together. But he didn't have any money. He's not a particularly wealthy guy. Um, and so he goes around in like a, some model, whatever, Ford, driving around the country roads of Dane County. And uh, sometimes he would even take the train. Like you could take the train to Stoughton and play, you know, distant, distant communities like Stoughton. Scott Walker wasn't governor then. Yeah, they had not shut the damn trains down. <laughs> and so he goes out on these, he goes out um, to these farm events. And it was so controversial to be a supporter of La Follette and a critic of the war, the idea of the war, admittedly support the troops, as we always do, but, but saying this is a dumb war, this war shouldn't be fought. And also to stand up for civil liberties and for freedom of speech in the context of World War I, that people would meet with Evu, but they, he would go to like to a, you know like a, a cooperative out in you know Blue Mounds, and they'd have him come in the back door, and there'd be like you know twelve farmers sitting in the back room, and Evu'd say, "I need you know we need your support to create this thing," and Evu wrote about it. He would come back, you know, like clutching you know, $141 or, or somebody had written over, some co-op had written over some you know, royalty check or some check to him and stuff like that. And he pieced all these things together and created a newspaper that unlike virtually any newspaper in the history of the world, was funded by the people who would read it. They made it possible. And they made it possible because they believed that Robert M. LaFollette needed to be defended rather than attacked for opposing World War I. And the incredible thing was that as this was happening, they would burn La Follette and Evu in effigy on this campus. It's important to understand the University of Wisconsin has you know, much reputation for Wisconsin idea and sifting and winnowing. But at that point, the University of Wisconsin abandoned La Follette, abandoned Evu, abandoned the cause of free speech and serious debate, really embarrassed itself terribly. But Evu kept on fighting. And he was forgiving enough to fund how many, how many chairs does the Evu Foundation now fund? Probably about 18 or so. Yeah, one of the largest funders of the university now. But um, at that point, it was an incredibly difficult moment. And the paper came into being. And the incredible thing about it is you can make movies about this stuff. Writing this book was a total delight. Because when they, caught, they got the FBI, they got the, the, the U.S. intelligence services to come and look at the Cap Times because they claimed it was a subversive newspaper. And the guy who was, was doing this set up across the street in the, what's now the pizzeria down there, it used to be the Isthmus building. They think he was set up across from the Cap Times. And he's like watching who goes in and stuff like that. So one day, Evu goes out and says, Hey, you know, look, you're, you're watching us. You're asking questions of everybody around town. Why don't you come on over to the Cap Times? You can do your investigation from inside the Cap Times and look at the books and look at the farmers who funded this paper. You just come and sit with us right over here. And the guy did, looked at it all, finally went back to Washington and wrote a report that completely cleared the Capital Times of any wrongdoing, but then never released the report. So then there's this huge struggle wherever you is demanding that the FBI and other people reveal what they found out about the Capitol Times. And once they did, that became a tipping point. 
because they published it on the front page, people began to realize the absolute dishonesty of those who went after the paper, including the editors of the State Journal, many of the people at the university, many of the people in state government. And it really was a pivot point. And suddenly the Cap Times began to grow into something quite remarkable well, as a newspaper. Right. And one of the turning points, I think, in, in that whole uh, early years was Evie's insistence on, on printing the uh, profits that the, a lot of the manufacturers in Madison were making because of the war. Uh, the, uh, was it, whether it was Gischholz or many of the other foundries in town at the time, uh, they were, uh, he would accuse them of pushing this war uh, solely for the f fact that they would, uh, they, they would uh, make, make a lot of money out of it, and which they did. And of course, that's been the case with wars throughout our history. But no, no one ever really exposed that for what it was. He'd, he'd, he'd put the stories on, on the front page showing that Gishel's profits had increased, uh, you know, 67% uh, since the beginning of the war. And, uh, and it was, and, and people started uh, really paying attention to the paper. It, although it had a lot of trouble selling advertising in the early years, no it's, kidding. It's, it's subscribers, the subscription circulation was, uh, uh, was very robust. And in fact, the paper was only, what, three years old, it had 10,000 circulation, mm -hmm. which was virtually equal to the State Journal at the time. And it, you know, in just three years. That, that, so it was pretty amazing. That struggle to get readers at the start created the Cap Times tradition of loyalty. And, and if, you, if you know anything about the Cap Times, you know that if we like a politician or if we like a cause, we are very, very loyal to that person and to that cause. And there's a reason for that. Because we started, even before, long before I was born, our newspaper started with a test of loyalty. We started with the question of, are you going to stand for the Constitution of the United States, the freedom of speech, the right to assemble, the right to petition for the redress of grievances? Are you going to stand for realistic debate in this country? Or are you going to stand on the side of the profiteers and those who would really rip the Constitution up in order to advance their, their personal comfort? It was, a, it was a bloody, awful struggle. Our, our newspaper boys got beat up, right? Kids selling the paper. And so this incredible thing in the paper, when you know, people started to die off, and the people who'd been around in 1917, 1918, 1920, when they started to die off in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Abu would often put their obituary, you got your obituary on the front page if you'd been an early subscriber or advertiser in the Cap Times. And there was this one little couple that had the, uh, the clothing shop down on State Street. Right, which early, early on had, uh, was a loyal advertiser. They little time, they, their ad, yeah. I looked it up when we were doing the book, the ads were never bigger than this, but they put an ad in. And so every time the paper had an anniversary, like every, it's 50th anniversary, it's, you know, or 40th, whatever anniversary, there'd be a little profile of this, this guy, this man and woman who had a little clothing shop because they dared to advertise in the Cap Times in 1917. That's what this paper has been for a very long time. In the book, what we write about is the struggles, not just to the founding, but early on, um, the Ku Klux Klan was huge in Madison. It was a huge presence. It wasn't hugely supported, but it was a huge presence in the city. And one of the best, I think one of the best chapters in the book really deals with that struggle with the Klan. And Ebu just dogging them going after them, naming names, listing who was in. If you were associated with the Klan, your name was going to end up in the Capital Times. Didn't matter how prominent you were. Didn't matter who you knew. That included people associated with law enforcement, wherever you were. And so it was an incredible struggle. Um, and through it all, it was also this association with Robert M. LaFollette. And that may have been the most central thing of the whole book. Right. Yeah, we uh, uh, actually, we, we did this book. It's not so much a chronology. In fact, it's not, not even any, anywhere near close to being a chronology. But we took uh, major issues that the Cap Times has been involved in over these 100 years. And it was pretty tough to, uh, to pick. You know, over 100 years, there's a lot of uh, water under the bridge. Uh, and it, it was a, a lot of picking and choosing uh, to, and, uh, to keep it to somewhat of a reasonable length. But the, uh, uh, of course, uh, the McCarthy era is a huge part of the book, uh, which, uh, uh, which was a, a real uh, uh, 
probably one of the bright stars in the paper's history and our, our uh, fight against McCarthy, what he stood for long before uh, McCarthy became a, 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 a national figure. Uh, and uh, We really hated on him. Yeah, oh God, he hated him. Man, we did not and, like Joe McCarthy. And, and what, I think one of the uh, chapters in the book that you'll find uh, quite interesting is, is our, our look at the 1960s. Uh, Beginning with uh, uh, the, the Wisconsin primary uh, between Hubert Humphrey and, and John F. Kennedy uh, in, in April of 1960, of course, uh, going out all the way through the Sterling Hall bombing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, uh, it was quite a, uh, a, a tumultuous uh, decade, as we all know, and uh, the Captains played a real key role here in Madison oh, yeah. uh, that, uh, on that whole scene. Critical one thing is to that that was where Dave actually became a part of the paper. That's true. Yeah, he was uh, he actually yeah. came on staff. And so he was also in the National Guard. So there were points at which Dave was called out to deal with student protests. Um, and he was also one of the main reporters for the Cap Times. Of course he couldn't report. So there would be these stor long stories on you know riots, demonstrations, whatever, downtown. And at the end, it in classic Evie fashion would say, Cap Times writer Dave Zwiefel did not contribute to this report <laughs> because he's down there doing National Guard duty. And I'm not sure that was because he was mad at you or happy with no, you. Yeah, yeah. But it is a, the book isn't all serious. We, uh, I, we've done a, a, a quite a few uh, anecdotes uh, that will sort of give you some of the flavor, especially of the animosity between the two newspapers, yeah. uh, between the State Journal and the Cap Times. Uh, we had a, a legendary city editor in the Cap Times history was a guy named Cedric Parker, uh, who was just a uh, uh, just an iconic kind of a, a almost a, a film uh, epic. epic. He would be in a movie about like a 1930s yeah, newspaper. Yeah. But the best thing about Ced Parker, aside from the story Dave is about to tell, is that McCarthy, before McCarthy accused anybody else of being a communist, McCarthy accused Ced Parker of being a communist. Have you called him in? Said, said, are you a communist? And said, you know, boldly replied, not at this time. Cedric <laughs> <laughs> was, very, was uh, very involved in, in uh, labor organizing, uh, even as a newspaper man. And he uh, would organize for the CIO, which, of course, had a lot of uh, communist ties back in, back in those early Probably days. Not at this time was a perfect answer. That was a perfect yeah. answer, yeah. But the story goes, when Cedric was still a reporter, uh, he, uh, there was an uh, incident on Lake Mendota in which uh, uh, the boat obviously uh, must have sunk or something. There's these people from, uh, who were tourists here in town uh, all of a sudden didn't show up at the, back at the dock, and, uh, and nobody could find any trace of them. Uh, and uh, so... The, <laughs> Uh, that happened, say, like on a Sunday afternoon. And, and Monday morning, uh, Cedric and a photographer went out and started walking around Lake Mendota to see if they could find any trace of this boat that the police haven't been able to find. And sure enough, they happened upon the body of the guy who, uh, whose boat it was. And, uh, of course, this is now in, the, in say, about 8, 9 o'clock in the morning. Both the State Journal and the Capital Times were afternoon newspapers back in those days. So the deadlines were typically 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, so Cedric didn't know what to do here. He said, if they called the police and said they found a body, obviously then the State Journal would find out about it and they'd have the story too. And that would just be wrong. And that would be wrong. So they tied the body under the pier. Gently and with respect. Went back to the office and did the story. Waited it out. And then at 1 o'clock, when the State Journal was safely <laughs> on the press, they called the police and said, we found a body. <laughs> and, uh, but that's the length that these, these people would go to uh, back in those days. Uh, not that we do that today. There are some but... people here from the Simpsons Free <laughs> Press, and I just want to tell you, don't try this. <laughs> I know you won't. Um, <laughs> But there's honor in beating your opposition in a, in a newspaper war. And so the book has a lot of that. Frankly, the book also has just a lot of political struggle in it. And um, one of the things that, that really is central to the book 
is um, the story of how we responded to moments that other people responded differently. And classically, in um, 1945, on the day that the Capital Times published the news that World War II had ended, and it was packed with stories about the end of the war, and we listed everybody from the county who had been killed, and you know, the whole, it was, it was pretty, pretty thorough edition. When you got to the editorial at the end of it, in this moment of celebration, this moment of, you know, focus on a war, the Capital Times editorial that day, which was very long, was saying, we hope that now that this war is done, nobody tries to militarize the peace. Because we should not let, when a war is finished, when it is done, it should finish. And we detailed an effort to expand military recruitment on the UW campus, and we opposed it. And we said, no, a campus should not be a militarized zone. And I will guarantee you that no other newspaper had an editorial like that on the day that the war ended. But the fact of the matter is, the Capital Times has always tried to anticipate the struggles that were ahead rather than to wait for when they break out. And so it was that on September 11th, which we just had the anniversary, we mourned what had happened on September 11th, the tragedy, the horror of it. But our first editorial said, be careful of those who will try to use what happened in New York and Washington as an excuse to lead us into war in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. And we opposed those initiatives because we have believed from the founding of the newspaper that if there's any way to stop a war, we're gonna be in the forefront of trying to stop it. And the one exception from that was when Hitler invaded Norway and have you switched to full-throated support of World War II. <laughs> Which well, gets back to the Norway yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, he was always accused of that. He was always opposed to war until Hitler invaded Norway. But <laughs> It's like, wow, on a dime. But that, and that, that quite. That pretty quite close. And, and uh, we had, you know the Quisling Clinic here in town? You know, Qu there's a Quisling became Hitler's guy in Norway. And boy, did the Cap Times... It, the Cap Times maintained a regular dialogue with the Quislings here in town. Um, and it was, it was uh, gentle prodding for them to make sure that they were not in any alliance with their cousin. Um, and so the fact is, we take all this stuff seriously. We've had a lot of fun with it over the years. The book is filled with that. It is different than any other book about a newspaper. It's really a book about a journalism that has passion, that has meaning, and that frankly will last much longer than most of the rest of the press in this country, because at a time of crisis for media, that crisis is rooted in the fact that too much of our media was so bland that fake news seemed more exciting. And we have tried to produce something over the last hundred years that was so engaged and so passionate, but real, that it would be better than fake news, that it would be real news that actually said something. And so we've had a pretty exciting journey one of the people who took a lot of that journey with us was Ed Garvey. And Ed Garvey, um, who most of you know quite a bit about, uh, Ed Garvey was uh, a friend of the Cap Times, columnist for the Cap Times, close friend of Dave Zwiefel, as was his running mate for Lieutenant Governor, Barbara Lawton, who is with us today. You should give her a round of applause, please. And so if we can at this point, um, and we're going to sacrifice a little, we'll, we'll still, till, still tell some ridiculous stories about the Cap Times. But I want to invite uh, Norm Stockwell, who's the uh, publisher of The Progressive, a publication that was always closely associated with the Cap Times, uh, up to join us and, uh, and say a few words on Yeah, we should make note of the fact, uh, with Norm here, that... Uh, uh, William T. Evu, uh, after uh, Robert M. Follett passed away in 1925, actually um, helped the uh, Bell of Follett to keep the paper going. And as a matter of fact, was its publisher uh, the, uh, yeah. for a uh, an editor for for, for about six seven years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, and they and they did in fact split over Norway. They did right, right. Well, over entry in World War II. Yeah, precisely. Okay, Norm, sorry. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, it's great to be here on this weekend celebrating the 
CapTime's 100th anniversary and uh, all of our shared history here in Madison, Wisconsin, including the life of the great Ed Garvey. And we do have a photo of Ed that we brought today. This weekend is uh, the Fighting Bob Fest weekend uh, here in Madison and around the state. And of course, Ed, the founder, uh, originator of Fighting Bob Fest. Uh, I, I was going to real quick read something, which I don't usually do, but um, Dave Zirin, the, uh, the wonderful progressive sports columnist, uh, when uh, Ed passed away last February, Dave asked me to uh, send him a note about uh, Ed. And so this is what I said, which he put in the, the Nation magazine. I knew Ed since the mid-1980s, and he was a tireless fighter for the notion of citizen democracy. Ed believed that everyday people deserved a voice in their government, and he worked tirelessly to set up structures and institutions that would make that possible. As an attorney, he represented citizens opposing the theft of their groundwater by Perrier, the efforts to keep out factory farms and a Walmart superstore, and for the rights of inmates at Wisconsin's Supermax prison. As an activist, Ed founded Fighting Bob Fest in the style of an early 20th century Chautauqua, where people could gather and hear speeches by activists on issues of grassroots democracy. He also created the People's Legislature to give citizens a voice when their elected officials seemed to only be listening to the voices of corporations. Ed never gave up his optimism that with people power, the struggle for just, honest, and responsive governance could be won here in Wisconsin and across the United States. Ed Garvey. It's a pretty good statement on the guy. Yeah, I, uh, I've, it's been a year now? Well, February. So it's not, February, no, it seems, it's weird. It seems like yeah. longer to me it does, that Ed to me been too. gone. But um, it's and, only been... And st still miss it deeply. One of the, uh, my most memorable occasions with Ed was the, probably the last few years when uh, Barbara Lawton and, and uh, he and I would uh, go to lunch about once every six weeks or so. And uh, just then our spleen about how bad a shape the, the entire world was in, and uh, especially the political scene. And uh, uh, But Ed was always such a delight and, uh, uh, and, and full of wisdom and wit. And uh, just, uh, uh, he, he, he he did. Uh, I, I, he came back to Madison from the Football Player Association the same year I became editor of the Cap Times, in 1983, uh, and uh, that's when we sort of renewed uh, 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 our acquaintances again. And uh, but he uh, he soon talked me into giving him a column in the uh, in the paper, and of course, which we ran for for several years, uh, decades. Yeah. <laughs> And, and of course, he started fighting, uh, fightingbob.com, mm -hmm. uh, which is actually the fightingbob.com is uh, the Cap Times, uh, uh, what do you call that, IRL or whatever? URL. 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 Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> whatever these the fancy things. Tech master <laughs> of the universe. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and just did a, a you know, daily blog on, on, on his uh, views of what was happening in. Uh, particularly state politics. And uh, he always accused Nichols and uh, me of causing him to run for governor in, uh, against Tommy in uh, 1998. We should clarify that he ran an incredibly noble campaign for the United States Senate in 1986. His election to the Senate was stolen by the money and the lies of Robert Caston who went on to serve another term in the U.S. Senate as a, frankly, dishonorable person. Kasten was such a bad person that after, after the election, when it didn't matter, he acknowledged that the ads that he put up were not truthful. Um, in my mind, he was as shameful a person as we've seen in our politics. Until, you know, the last year or so. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but, then he came back and ran again in 88 for the Senate, and it didn't go as well. And the one thing he promised Betty Garvey was, okay, I'm done with this political thing. You know, I'm not going to run for office anymore. I'm going to go and focus on these things. So then Dave and I start edit writing editorials and columns saying, you know, 
there's no good Democrats stepping up to run in 1998. If the Democrats don't run a candidate in 1998, it could cost Feingold his seat. It could, it could really end up destroying the two-party system in Wisconsin. And, and so Ed started talking to Betty, and Betty could tell the story better than we could. It wasn't, it was not an immediate, he was scared. He was scared to but bring it up. But Betty, who's the true progressive in the family, ultimately said, well, you got to go do it. And, um, and he went and ran. And the incredible thing about it is he said, well, I'm not going to run as some white guy running again. I gotta, I'm going to have a woman on the ticket. And, and it's got to be a woman who's ready to be governor of this state, who's fully qualified, who knows the issues. And he turned to Barbara Lawton and he said, I want you to run with me on this ticket. And we're running it together as a ticket. The posters will all say Garvey Lawton. The t-shirts will all say Garvey. It's not going to be one big name and one small name. And to give you a sense of who Ed Garvey was, when they went to events around the state, because Garvey was funny and good. You know, he's, he's good on his feet. He had the Irish ability to talk. I know nothing of that. But he, uh, Ed would go to these events. They'd say, Ed, well, we got you scheduled. You're keynoting. Or you're gonna, we're going to put you up here and you're going to you know, speak. And he'd say, well, um, that's great. I'm glad to say a few words, but my running mate is going to speak as well. And the interesting thing about that was Ed got beat in 1998. You may not have known that. <laughs> um, and his defeat was the greatest victory and defeat that anybody had ever had because he brought out voters in Milwaukee and in other places around the state that saved Russ Feingold, who won that election by only 38,000 votes. Those Garvey voters helped him to get over the top. He also brought out a lot of rural progressives, small town progressives, who built that margin that Tammy Baldwin won in her very close congressional race in 1998. He contributed to others winning, even as he was defeated. And four years after that campaign, the woman that he said people had to listen to beat the party establishment and became the lieutenant governor of this state and served for eight years as the greatest lieutenant governor this state has ever had. And so that's who Ed Garvey was. He never served as a U.S. senator. He never served as a governor. But he made U.S. senators possible. He made a lieutenant governor possible. And it happened that the people he empowered were women and African-Americans and young people. And when we look at the great arc of history in this country, the people we should get excited about are not always those who win elections. They're the people who clear the way for others to win elections. And that's who Ed Garvey was. We should also mention the Fighting Bob Fest, which really is Not a, a, bad thing. a grand tradition that's now in his 16th year. And Ed made the Fighting Bob Fest happen. And uh, John and I were at the event last night at uh, the Barrymore Theater here in Madison. And again this morning in Milwaukee. And we're going to La Crosse later gonna be there uh, yet. this afternoon. And here you have... Ed's dream was always that Fighting Bob Fest would extend around the state, that it wouldn't just be a Madison thing, that it would be something that would reach out to people and would incorporate all of the local movements in all those different parts of the state. And that's what's happening now. Milwaukee, all the folks that we saw this morning were Milwaukee activists. And all the folks that we're going to see this afternoon are lacrosse activists, people in that part of the state coming together to do this Chautauqua-style gathering of sharing of stories and news and information and hope and inspiration. And that's really what the Fighting Bob Fest is all about, 16 years strong now. And there's one other element of it, too. Bob Fest from the start has been, I'll admit the crowds, I wish we could, you know, I mean, it's Wisconsin, and, and you want, always want even more. But on that stage, Bob Fest has been, always been multiracial, multiethnic, gender diverse, respecting of our LGBTQ community, respecting of people or activists on issues like the environment and war and peace. It's been very different than, frankly, a lot of things that occur. And the main speaker about this this year was Nina Turner, who is an African-American activist who is a leading backer of Bernie Sanders and has emerged as now, she's now the leader of his group, Our Revolution, or their group, Our Revolution. And so, this is why we love Bob Fest, because it, it extends from the best of the Cap Times tradition, which is that we have never been satisfied with America as it is. We have never been satisfied with where this country is on the issue of civil rights. We've never been satisfied with where this country is 
on the issue of gender equality. We've never been satisfied with their, where this country is on economic justice. We believe this is an unjust country that does not treat all of its citizens as it should, but we believe it can be a just country. And that is why in one of the chapters of the book, we look at our presidential endorsements. And admittedly, the first election after we came into being, it was La Follette, and the second election, it was La Follette. And basically, as long as we had a La Follette we could back, we did in almost any setting. But it's important to understand, and one of the people who writes a nice few words on the back of the book is Jesse Jackson. And Jesse Jackson notes that when he was running for president, most people mocked his idea of a rainbow coalition. This idea that you could bring together rural farmers and urban workers and people of color with working class white people, that you could bridge all these gaps and actually create a politics built around economic and social justice, racial justice and peace. That people in the Democratic Party, they laughed at that. They said, well, you know, good luck with that, mister. And they were busy off Bill Clinton and people like that forming the Democratic Leadership Council, or as is well referred to, Democrats for the Leisure Class. And the, but what Jackson said in his little comment on the Cap Times was, it was this weird thing that happened as he was running for president. There was this one little paper out in the middle of the country that took him seriously. And they didn't just take the idea seriously, it became the first daily newspaper in the United States to endorse him for president of the United States of America. And it's an interesting thing that uh, another person who backed Jesse Jackson for president was Bernie Sanders. And the Capital Times has been associated with Bernie Sanders for decades, and who's come regularly to Bobfest over the years. And when Bernie Sanders was thinking about running for president, the Capital Times was the first newspaper, except for a nice little weekly in Vermont, that said Bernie Sanders should run for president. And if he does run for president, he will do so in the La Follette tradition. He will pick up from that independent progressive tradition and push it forward in the 21st century. And so there are no other papers like the Cap Times. There never has been and there may never be because the fact of the matter is William T. Ebu decided that he would take this platform of a daily newspaper in an incredible city, Madison, Wisconsin, in an incredible state, and he would use that platform to push for progressive ideas, not just at the moment, but the progressive ideas of 20, 30, 40, and 50 years beyond. There are things that Evu wrote about back in the 1920s and 1930s that are only now coming to fruition. We write a lot about that in the book. And we also note that frankly, we've probably gone a little soft because the truth of the matter is, there's a lot of points where Evu was rougher than we've ever been. Well, we should you tell just give them one one example of uh, I, I, I'll, I'll get you started. Um, Dave writes or does most of the great work on a chapter in the book on, on the environment. And what Ebu did on environmental issues was simply incredible. He sent people out to go along the rivers of Wisconsin and find go to the polluters. And you got that great story about when Marinus went to the one guy and the guy asked, did Ebu send you? Yeah. He, uh... Elliot Marinus, uh, David Marinus's father, who preceded me as editor of the Capital Times, uh, uh, low those many years ago. Have uh, <clears throat> you called Marinus down to his office because he had got a letter from a, uh, a friend of his from Merrill who uh, wanted to know whether Evie was aware of how the paper mills in the state were polluting the Wisconsin River. They were using it as its, uh, you know, sewer line. It, they, they dumped the pollutants and the poisons, and everything in the Wisconsin. Fish were dying. It was, uh, it was a, a, a horrible scene, according to according to, to Evu's friend. So Evu called Marinus down and told him he wanted to go, and uh, he wanted to go and spend the next couple of weeks on the Wisconsin River, and talking to these. Uh, 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 paper mill barons and find out why they were polluting the Wisconsin River. Uh, and he, one of the first uh, uh, paper mill barons he, he went to see uh, said, well, well, Bill Evu sent you here, didn't, didn't he? And uh, Elliot says, uh, 
Yeah, yes, he did. And he says, well, you go tell him to mind his own business. And so Elliot said, well, I will do that, and I'll also put it in the paper. So. <laughs> and, and we did put it on the front page of the paper. <laughs> and yeah, Elliot produced a, about a six-part series on, uh, on uh, how the uh, paper bills were polluting the Wisconsin River, which resulted into, resulted into uh, some regulations uh, uh, by the DNR, and also some legislation was passed to uh, protect the river and to put... Uh, 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 penalties on on, uh, on on corporations that uh, would uh, pollute the river, it, and unfortunately, those are some of the same regulations that you're seeing being repealed today. Which uh, and the horrible indefensible Foxconn deal. That's right. The, the little editorial comment there. Um, and he also so in that era of Elliot Marinus, who comes out as a real hero in the book, uh, they, we really with Whitney Gould and others opened up the DDT issue, and the the federal examinations of DDT and other chemicals and other agents uh, extended from Capton, many of them extended from Cap Times reporting. And Gaylord Nelson, who was a longtime friend of the paper, took those issues to Washington. I was just going to say, yeah. In fact, uh, Gaylord was a real, uh, uh, of course, catalyst in, uh, in, in getting a, a ban on DDT uh, here in Wisconsin first and then, of course, nationally. Uh, uh, Gaylord was an extremely close friend of the papers, uh, including Evu and then uh, Evu's successor, Miles, Miles McMillan, who uh, uh, was a real fire fireball editor as well. But, uh, but this is all in the book. Uh, yeah, which you should buy. You need to buy se yeah. several several copies. But let me give you a Miles McMillan story just for a sec. So this is great. Miles McMillan knew Gaylord Nelson really well. So after the paper went to bed. And after the legislature and things got finished off, they would end up over in the bar at the Lorraine Hotel. And anyone who knows anything about Gaylord knows that he didn't mind a cocktail. And so they would be sitting there, you know, sometimes talking about politics, talking about things as journalists and politicians do. So Miles got some big idea in his head and said, you know what this state needs? You got, we got to go after this issue. You got to start making some noise about this. And Gaylord's like, that's a good idea. By gosh, that's a great idea. And so, and so Gaylord gets so excited about it, he goes in and puts it a, a piece of legislation on it. And then next day, Miles is thrilled. He goes, wow, okay, so he writes a little story about it in the paper, on the front page of the paper in the first edition. Evu comes storming out of his office and says, what is this that Gaylord Nelson is proposing? Because while Gaylord was a friend of the paper, that did not save you from getting the scornful editorial now and again. And says, this is, a, this is a terrible idea what Gaylord has proposed here. Miles McMillan, write an editorial condemning Gaylord Nelson for putting this forward. And Miles, of course, did uh, in the later edition of the paper and then went down to the Hotel Lorraine to have a drink later. And Gaylord comes in and he says, uh, Miles, what the hell happened there? Uh, and he says, well, you, you were listening to the wrong people. <laughs> the newspaper was founded because of abuse commitment to advancing La Follette's ideas and La Follette's cause. It was as simple as that. La Follette wrote a beautiful letter, we reproduced it in the book, where he, it was like, my dear Billy, right, to William T. Ebu. And I, the only person I ever knew of it called him Billy, um, dared to. But um, I, I think that we have always sensed that there were gonna be political figures who would carry on in that La Follette tradition. And that's our standard, it's a very simple standard. And those who would carry on in that tradition which is not just a tradition of ideology or partisanship, but it's also a tradition of you know, taking risks, doing things that are not usually done. Um, that when we see people doing that, we, we, both Dave and I write pretty quick, right? And so, we, and so I, I, it's not so much a plan, it's more of a tradition. And what we do try to do is find young people coming up um, who embody that because we recognize that now we recognize, especially at this 100th anniversary, it's sort of a cool thing, because you're thinking, wow, we've been at this for 100 years. We've had a little impact. Um, we hope to have a lot more. And, um, and so we keep talking about political figures. And one interesting thing about it is that we occasionally will find a conservative or a Republican who we have tremendous differences with, but we will, and grudgingly, I admit, be fair to them. And, um, and, the remarkable thing is that 
Despite our rather ardent support of the Garvey-Lawton ticket, we maintain a remarkably close relationship with Tommy Thompson because we really banged away on the guy politically, but our interest is not in personalities. We're not particularly interested in whether you're a nice guy or bad, you know, we're interested in what you actually do. And Tommy always recognized that. And I'll give you my best Tommy Thompson story. One time I was in the office, we'd been editorializing day after day after day when Tommy Thompson was doing, edit, doing uh, welfare reform. And uh, Becky Young was just beating away on him saying, yeah, this welfare reform is a stupid, awful, cruel thing because you require these people to go get work, but you don't provide them with transportation to get to the work. And so you're actually putting a new burden on people. They're trying to get someplace, you're trying to get them into jobs, but they can't get there. They need a transportation subsidy. And oh, the Republicans in the legislature resisted that. And Tommy said no and no. And so we got increasingly vociferous day after day, brutal editorials about Tommy Thompson, a guy from rural Wisconsin who ought to understand the reality of how hard it is to get from one place to another. And finally, I remember I was in my office. It was like Friday afternoon at like 3.30, 4 in the afternoon. Phone rings. I pick it up. And it says, John? And I go, yeah. It says, it's Tommy Thompson. Tell Becky Young she's got her money. Click. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if any of you were able to get to Tommy's. Uh, He had a a program over at the Gordon Commons just uh, before this one. And I was there about the first half hour uh, before I came over here. Um, and he complained that uh, through all his political career, he has never once been endorsed by the Capitol Times. <laughs> and uh, he insisted that had the Capitol Times endorsed him in his, the race against uh, Tammy, uh, the last uh, senatorial election, that he would have won. Oh, <laughs> and uh, so anyhow, the... Jason Joyce uh, of our staff was questioning, uh, throwing questions at Tommy, and about another five, six minutes went by, and he, and he said, Tommy says, uh, uh, well, you know, I don't think I'll ever run for uh, public office again, unless, unless it's mayor of Elroy. And uh, to which I replied, well, Tommy, when you run for mayor of Elroy, we'll endorse you. So. Unless there is a more progressive candidate running. Thank you, people, for coming out. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Norm Stockwell, the the publisher of The Progressive. Thanks to Dave Griefold.